This is a fourth hand production. Is there one director that stands out from another one that really just, man, they've got this shit down. They know what well, they're doing. Let me ask you this. Are we talking living or dead or all of Hollywood? No, let's just go all. Let's do it broad real quick. All right. Well, I mean, there's there. If we're going all Hollywood, then there's a lot to talk about. Um, I mean, some of the directors that come to mind, um, past and present, I would go with uh, David Lynch, mm. Ari, Ari, Ari Aster, uh, Darren Aronofsky, Stanley Kubrick, Alfred Hitchcock. Story in the news today. You believe in ghosts and the paranormal. Are they are they UFOs or are they like some crazy experimental you know governmental I don't know planes that they're building? And police in Española are catching more than just criminals. They're catching images of what they believe are ghosts. This weird animal-like creature that was shot, wolf-like creature that just stood out in some odd ways. Welcome, everybody, to Strange Uncles. I'm Shane. And I'm John. <laughs> uh, shit. <laughs> hey, shit. Uh, can we uh, take it from the top? Uh, nope. Oh, shit. Nope. Fuck. I'm Josh. It's your hardcore masculinity, John. They're throwing completely off. You said that with such fucking assurance. <laughs> and I am John. <laughs> that shit is funny. Oh, my God. I'm the gentleman pirate. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, speaking of the devil, um, I don't know if you guys know. Let's start with that because it jogged my memory. Uh, isn't that on HBO Max now? The flag oh, is yeah. of death. It or sure something? Fuck is. I'm already caught up. <laughs> Are you really? Is uh, it good? I the, That's the third episode. That's I watched badass. the first couple episodes last night, um, and it's fucking ridiculous. And man, Reese Darby is just a treasure. So fucking funny. He is just a treasure. I cannot wait. I cannot wait. I have not started yet, but I'm going to try. So, oh man, yeah, it's yeah. so it's definitely worth the time. It's fucking hilarious. It's great. And uh, did we say the name of it? Uh, this flag means death. Thank you, because I couldn't yeah. remember. Yeah. Um, and I may be wrong, but I'm pretty sure Reese Darby's like way into UFOs. Oh, he oh, is. Really? He had a oh, podcast yeah. for a minute that got canceled. Hmm. Oh, did it? Um, okay. Oh, yeah, it was on like uh, a major network. Sure. Okay. Um, huh. I don't remember which one, but he, it had like nine episodes, and he in it he talks a bunch about like being a veteran too. Like he was in the I think uh, New Zealand's one of those countries that does like mandatory uh, service, mandatory or yeah. two years or whatever. Years. But he was in it yeah. for a while, and he was like, hmm. I want to say on like a signal ship. He was he was doing some shit. He's oh, but damn. Huh. Yeah. I love he's that guy. Anything, a yeah, super funny, silly dude that also could maybe kill you. Who yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> all the cool people are into UFOs, evidently. And that's, uh, he is you know. just fucking hilarious, though. So, but yeah. Uh, yeah. His great the, show. Yeah. Not to uh, finish every episode of ours before you check his out, but uh, <laughs> yeah, right. it's it's definitely worth the ride. It's really fun. It's funny. Yeah. Like, yeah. It's, it's a. A hilarious take on UFOs for sure. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, no, there, there's some good stuff out there for sure. I mentioned that just because you know that caught my caught my uh, my attention a little bit. You know, amongst everything else. So, um, oh, and while we're talking about dope ass new TV, yeah, uh, I did just want to throw this out for all my D and D nerds. Um, mm. There's a show on 
Amazon Prime called The Legend of Vox Machina that's basically based off a D&D campaign like from Oh what, really? Yeah, it's animated but it's done oh, really well okay. and it's fucking hilarious. Huh. And uh from what I've gathered, I don't I don't know for sure that they did this, but the way everything works with character development and the plot of the show, I'm pretty sure that as they were writing it, they were doing an actual D&D campaign. Like they were just like Oh, that's fucking funny. All right, here's the situation. Let's how are we going to write this? Let's see what happens. Roll the die, you know. So is it pretty funny? Would you it's say hilarious. it's hilarious? Like, oh, okay, cuz uh Dan Harmon's uh fucking something quest uh Harmon quest or whatever. Oh, I is, think I know which one you're talking about. Yeah. They play D&D, they like kind of animate it as well. Yeah. Like they go back and forth. Did you ever see that? I didn't. Was that no? Oh, that's what this came from. It's fucking hilarious, dude. Harmon Quest, like, uh, they put season two or three on something that I couldn't get, so I still haven't seen it. Yeah, funny. Well, um, yeah. Well, listeners, if yeah. you if you tune in, you would think that we're actually a um, uh, TV show movie review podcast. <laughs> we are not. We it's just, just on our minds right <laughs> just now. Just on our minds, exactly. <laughs> well, actually, it fits right into fucking our guests. To be honest with you, that we're going to have. Yeah, on because it really does. Yeah, that's uh, that's exactly what it is. On on that, uh, did you guys have anything else to cover real quick? Other than man, you got dumped on snow again. We're looking at spring. There's a war. Yeah, yeah it's, there's uh, shit. So. It's spring in Utah. We got dumped on a couple days ago, and now it's pretty much gone. And then it's going to snow again tonight. So. Yeah, Lovely. how is it? Lovely March. Yeah. Well, it is what it is for sure. So um, we have a guest coming up that we lined up and waiting to have him on the show for a long time. Uh, and he is an expert. Well, he's a lot of things, to be honest with you. But we did focus mainly on his research on uh, symbolism and hidden meetings in Hollywood. Uh, holy shit was the guy wealth of information. And I, I honestly think, you know, we say this sometimes with really good guests that come on the show could have had him on for a lot longer. Uh, you know, we were living on time because it was really late on his side, but damn, just a little tidbits that he fed us just for the short time he was on the show. It makes me want to go rewatch a bunch of shit that I've watched before. And I'm like, I never saw that. I never saw that. Uh, just crazy. You know? Yeah, he's yeah. A, he is an encyclopedia. That's why I asked him the dumb question, like, how many Blu-rays you got? Yeah, it wasn't dumb. I was curious. I expected way more than I expected said. way more. Like, I yeah. expected, like, uh, like maybe 1,000, 1,500. Like, I expected, like, an entire room, like, how people have, like, vinyls. Yeah. I yeah, expected, yeah. like, him to build shelves with walls, and they're all Blu-rays. No, like, he's got a giant 75-inch TV in the dark with a chair with a notepad. And that's what he does is he just watches and writes. That's all he does. <laughs> well, yeah. When he said, uh, I don't remember which movie we were asking him about when he was like, Oh, it's out on Blu-ray now. I'll probably pick it up. I was like, there's streaming. Some people like that physical oh. touchy stuff. They can put it in, pause it, but, whatever. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's why I so. expected it to be a much higher number <laughs> of yeah. Blu-rays. I was like, Oh, if that's your preferred way to consume media, I would assume. Yeah. I'm just glad he didn't say, yeah. And I got just as many VHSs because that would have been wow. But, well, I yeah. am that guy that has like hundreds <laughs> I, of DVDs we know, Josh. <laughs> and VHS tapes. My wife, I think, has all of Roseanne on VHS, and I'm like, "Honey, can we throw these away?" No, like I, Roseanne on VHS, huh? Oh Christ! Yes. Hey, you know, yes. hold on to that. One day it's going to be money. Yeah, probably. Yeah, it probably is now. Why are you talking? <laughs> yeah, it's probably going to come back the way vinyl did, or the way cassette tapes are coming back because. Let's be real. Cassette tapes and VHS tapes are like the worst way to distribute. Yeah. Oh no. Uh, no, Vinyl sounds good. Cassettes and VHS are 
terrible. Well, let's yeah. throw eight tracks into that mix as well because that's um that's another awful awful form of. Listening I don't even really know what that is to be honest with you. Jesus, you sound before like my twenty two year old son. Yeah, that was way for a time. Yeah. Anyway, well, I'm not going to date myself before I get down that rabbit hole. Uh, let's I go ahead and either. jump in the <laughs> let's jump the interview, everybody. We had the pleasure of inviting on Robert Sullivan the uh, Fourth. Again, he's many things, but number one, he is just a researcher of uh, man. What we see every day in a movie, uh, he picks so much more out of it. So, unless you guys got anything, open the gates. Negative. Robert W. Sullivan IV is a historian, philosopher, antiquarian, jurist, writer, mystic, radio, TV personality, showman, best-selling author, CEO, and lawyer. Wow, that is a lot of stuff. I can't even imagine what uh, just the accomplishments. Crazy. Um, he is author of five books, The Royal Arch of Enoch, Cinema Symbolism, One, Two, and Three, and A Pact with the Devil, uh, the last one there being a work of fiction. Uh, Mr. Sullivan is also a Freemason of Amicable St. John's Lodge Number 25 and a 32nd degree of the Scottish Rite Valley of Baltimore, Orient of Maryland. And we have been waiting to have Robert on the show for a long time because there's one thing that, that we kind of go down the road a little bit, you know, when we get out of the weirdness, is just movies because all three of us love movies and we all have our own hindsights to it. And Mr. Sullivan, uh, is this is right down his alley and the time he spent in what you see behind the movies, the hidden meanings, the symbolism, everything else. And we can't wait to actually pick his brain on all this. So Robert uh, Sullivan, thank you very much. Welcome to Strange Uncles. Yeah, well, thank you for having me on, guys. It's my pleasure to be here, and um, I'm looking forward to the uh, show tonight. It's, again, my pleasure. Yeah, no, fantastic. And, you know, so first of all, um, you know, again, I think we're all going to kind of roundhouse this because we've all got like favorite movies and we're reading through some of the talking notes that you, you provided. And honestly, some of my favorites are in your notes. And so I'm really curious on, you know, picking your brain on on your viewpoints. You know, some people watch a movie just to watch a movie. It's their way of shutting off the brain. And then there's other people that they don't. They really look into the fine art. Uh, you know, what's it mean? What's the hidden meaning? What's going on? With all that being said, uh, I'd like to cover a little bit of the history. Like, how did you get into this world um, and then just make this your thing? How, how did that occur? Yeah, it, it goes it goes way, way back. Um, it actually probably started when I was in high school. I was born in, uh, you know, I'm of Generation X. I was born in 1971. So I grew up on Star Wars. And um, it was really in high school um, when I kind of discovered that, the Star Wars movies, especially, um, you know, let's see, well, this was pre the prequels. So, um, so this would have been like in the late eighties, um, that Star Wars, let's see, this would have been four five and six, a new hope empire and Jedi, um, were based on, uh, a book by a man named Joseph Campbell, who was an American, who was an American writer and he was into comparative mythology. And hmm. when I began examining this, I, you know, I was, kind of like oh you know what what is this what what what's going on here and when you read the book it becomes very apparent i mean not only apparent but completely obvious um that lucas was basically repackaging old mythologies um you know greco-roman egyptian and just rebranding them and just you know instead of hmm. you know the character being hercules or horus 
you know, or Typhon, or, you know, it was now Darth Vader, Luke Skywalker, Princess Leia, things like that. He was just rebranding these old uh, mythologies. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is not a conspiracy or anything like that. This isn't me making this up. Uh, The copy of the book that I have, the copy of the Campbell book, it's called A Hero with a Thousand Faces. Um, There's a testimonial by Lucas in the book um, where he actually says, you know, this is the book that, you know, spun Star Wars, you know, that I based Star Wars off of. So that for me was always really interesting. I thought, you know, is this going on? Um, you know, I've always, you know, I'm, I was a kid at the time. I'm thinking, you know, I'm watching movies. I'm being entertained by them, you know, but is there, there's deeper meanings to these things. Um, and, you know, I, I kind of, that, that just always left a deep impression on me with Star Wars with Campbell. Um, and it really wasn't later, you know, the, the, the Masonic book, the Royal Arch was the first one that I wrote. Um, and it was really sort of towards the end of the century, the last century, the late 1990s, um, where there was this slate um, of these Gnostic movies coming out. And I don't know if it was intentional. I don't think it was. I think it's a product of, um, you know, some sort of subconscious reaction to the turn of the century. You had this slate of Gnostic movies coming out, which kind of took me, you know, you know, it was like, wow, what's going on here? Mm-hmm. And then one of, one of the movies that really sealed the deal for me was the first National Treasure movie, um, which was really a retelling of a Masonic ritual. Um, and when I started seeing this, and you coupled this with what I knew about Star Wars, um, I kind of, you know, just started analyzing movies and, and it was really first off, you know, identifying the themes in the movies. Cause not all movies have it. And once the identification occurred, then it was picking it apart. Um, you know, was it a Gnostic film? Was it an alchemical movie? What's going on here? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, breaking the movie down and just taking it apart and seeing if there was any esoteric undercurrents and, and, you know, called meanings and symbolism. Um, and that's how it all began for me. And it, it's really, I'll just wrap up on this with the first book I wrote, which was the Royal Arch of Enoch, which I'll keep it brief, which delved into this, you know, arcane Masonic history. And I wanted to bring the, when I concluded the book, I wanted to bring it up to speed and end it in the modern day. So I thought what better way than to analyze Masonic, uh, you know, sort of undercurrents in, in popular movies. Yeah. That, actually, that's absolutely amazing. So the, the, here's a chicken before the egg question. Um, sure. In your bio, you know, you talk about you are a, uh, you're a Mason, obviously. Uh, did you, was it what you were seeing in the movies and some of your early research that led you down to do that? Or was that something that you already had and that helped you relate and, and kind of unfold these movies more? Like which one came first on that? Yeah, it was definitely the Masonic membership came first. Um, that, that was really because the the move the movie stuff was spawned out of the Masonic book. Um, what happened was um, I come from a long line of Maryland Freemasons, um, and it was something I always wanted to do. In the mid nineteen nineties, it was a point in time in my life where I was out of college, and it was right before I went to high school. High school went to law school, um, and this was prior. You know, this was the mid nineties, nineteen ninety six, ninety seven, um, and the opportunity was afforded to me to join a local Masonic lodge here in Baltimore, and I took it. Um, and it was really going through the rituals, um, you know, which which helped me. But more than that, it was after you after I had gone through it, and then you start reading the works of people like Manley Palmer Hall, Albert Pike, Albert Mackey, that you're really going to be able to start putting this together and saying, oh, okay, you know, now I'm I, I understand the symbolism of what these rituals are trying to convey mm-hmm. because you, you go through the Masonic rituals. This is going to maybe sound a little strange. I mean, you hear this all the time, you know, they don't know why they're doing them. And, you know, this is the ritual. We're just doing it. And you know, this is the way it's laid out. Um, when you break it down, there is a reason why they're doing it. The, the Masonic rituals 
contain these very vast um, esoteric meanings. Um, and when you kind of un- de- you know discover that and decode it, um, for me, it was kind of like, you know, you know, that that's kind of like, you know, when my eyes started becoming open. But for me, th- and this is just me speaking personally, it kind of had this side effect that I didn't anticipate, which was not only could I apply this, you know, to Masonic symbolism, seeing it in the creation of the country, you know, on the state seals and the colleges, universities, I could also start seeing it in cinema. And it was sort of this unexpected side effect that I developed this talent um, out of Freemasonry that, you know, if I watched a movie, I could just sort of pick up on these occult themes, undercurrents um, that were going on. But it was definitely a result of my Masonic membership. So I, I got a question before I forget it, because it, it just I'm, I'm curious more than anything, a little side shoot here. Yep. Has this ruined movies for you? Like now that you see, this is what you know. When you see a movie, uh, does it completely change that focus? Or sometimes you just can't sit down and just watch a movie for a movie. Oh no, no! I, it's it's the exact opposite. I think oh. for me, um, no, I I've, I can watch a movie on. Yeah, you know, I mean, I can watch a movie for the entertainment value of it. In fact, that's usually the when I. When I watch a movie for the first time, I usually do it just for the entertainment value. Mm. This may surprise some people. Um, I usually, I'm, I'm, I usually don't go to the movie theater. Um, I usually watch oh. movies for the first time at home um, on mm. Blu-ray. I, I am much more happier just buying the Blu-ray and just being able to throw it into my PS3 mm. and you know, watching it, pausing it, you know, stopping it, you know, at my leisure, essentially. Um, and, es- and especially when it comes time to doing the analysis, I have to have that. I mean, I, ha- I have to have the movie at my fingertips. I- otherwise, I wouldn't be able to do it. I mean, I- because believe me, I mean, some of these movies have to be rewatched multiple times to-, to pick up on it. In fact, I can report that some movies I've seen so many times, I'm actually almost afraid to rewatch them because I'm afraid I'm going to see something that I missed. Um <laughs> So no, for me personally, I, I can watch a movie for its entertainment value. Now, usually the gears start turning in the back of my head at some point, like, well, I, you know, I kind of see what's going on here. But no, um, I, I can definitely watch a movie for its entertainment value. Um, but um, for me, no, I love I love decoding them. Um, it's 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 uh, you know, it's like playing a game of chess. You know, trying to figure out what's going on and you know what the what the filmmakers are doing and just how nuanced and subtle some of it is. Um, I mean, it's, it's really, you know, some of the examples I give in the books, um, I mean, I've actually started writing cinema symbolism for, as I'm doing this interview with you, Hmm. it's, it really is astounding, um, to some of the, to to some of just the really levels of detail these filmmakers pay attention to and and really will encode in their movies. Um, that, that never ceases to amaze me. Well, and, and, and I think that's my question. We can kind of start there. And first of all, you know, I've ordered your books. Um, had a chance to thumb through, uh, cinema one, haven't used other two, you know, I've got them, of course, you know, just wealth of information about what's out there. So let's talk about that a bit. If you're okay with that, Rob, when we talk about, uh, what, you know, the directors or the writers that put something into there. Let's start with series, something that's not, there's just not one movie out there. It's just part one, part two, part three. Maybe we can do Star Wars. Maybe we can do the James Bond films, whatever. You've got a list of things that you've studied. In your opinion, what are the top, you know, line of movies that really have kept a focus on having these things in their films? Like, is there any running series that really is just every single movie has something? 
Oh, like like a, like a, like a movie. You're not talking like an individual movie, but like a se- like a like a series of movies. C- correct, like the James Bond series. Or yeah, the well, Star Wars. that would be you know right. Sure, sure. I understand the question. Um, yeah, I mean, you could definitely talk about the James Bond movies, which are based on the books by Fleming. Um, there's certainly a lot going on in those. Um, I mean, there's overarching themes uh, in, in in Bond, um, and again, you know, you you could find this in um, Star Wars, of course, which you just mentioned, uh, Harry Potter, um, the Lord of the Rings. These are all the retelling of the Campbell monomyth. Um, you know, certainly the Matrix films, uh, the three Matrix films would come to mind as a series. Mm-hmm. Um, in television, I mean, the one movie, the, the one, the one TV show uh, that consumed the entire summer of uh, whenever it was 2019. When I looked at it, I have it here on Blu-ray. Was Twin Peaks? Uh, that was oh. a, a, you know, that there's a, tons of information and, and symbolism going on in that. Um, so yeah, I mean, off the top of my head, those are some series, movie series that have have a lot in them. Um, of course, there are standalone movies as well, um, but just off the top of my head yeah those are those are definitely series um that you know would be starting points to uh analyze mm-hmm. well uh i kind of want to i got my interest peaked by you mentioning a lot of stuff going on in uh the james bond series probably just because it just wrapped up and i watched the last movie in it well the last movie with daniel craig anyway um recently and i was just kind of wondering if you could go into a little bit more depth about some of the stuff that's going on in in that series um from an overarching standpoint, because I know there's always a villain and they always like have their overarching symbology. And I know that bond typically goes on a hero's journey in each installment, but like, uh, <clears throat> I guess, could you expand on, on sure. some of the symbolism you're talking about in that specific instance? Yeah. Well, like James, to understand James Bond, you have to understand Ian Fleming, uh, the guy who wrote the novels that the movies are based upon, at least, at least the early movies are based upon the ones with uh um sean connery and roger moore those are the ones i grew up with um fleming i mean to really start the analysis you have to understand fleming and and again this is material that you know i've been on other shows this is one of my all-time favorite talking points is the james bond stuff um because this definitely comes out of the world of you can't make this stuff up um you know Fleming during World War II was in British British counterintelligence. One of the guys who was under him that he handled was Aleister Crowley of all people. What? And uh, and really? uh, you know, oh yeah, absolutely. Wow. And um, Crowley was a double agent for the British Empire, and he was he was using secret societies. Um, to wheedle around and maneuver and get information and get it back to the British. Um, huh. what, one of the things, and I, this is a bit of a side, a side story, um, but this is absolutely true, was one of the things um, that Crowley had proposed to Fleming, and it actually went up to Churchill, was um, when Rudolf Hess, Hitler's deputy, flew to Scotland on the botched peace mission, um, it was well known that Hess was into the occult. He was into astrology. In fact, I think he flew out on a certain date that he thought was astrologically, you know, beneficial. And uh, when they captured Hess and they put him in the Tower of London, Crowley went to Fleming and said, let me perform some Ars Goetia rituals in front of this guy. I'll conjure a demon or two. We'll scare the hell out of him. And, uh, you know, maybe we'll get him to talk about some of the Nazis, you know, proclivities regarding the occult astrology. I mean, Hitler was into the occult, Himmler, Goebbels, you know, that coterie. Um, and it's apparently this went all the way up to Winston Churchill who eventually vetoed it. But no, um, Crowley was very, um, you know, interactive with that whole, you know, 
counter-espionage during World War II of Fleming, Dennis Wheatley, um, Raul Dahl, the guy who wrote Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Um, these were all guys who hung around with Crowley. And you can definitely, and it's through Crowley that you get this occult uh, influence upon Fleming. I mean, where, you know, it's like, where do you want to start? Um, the wow. 007 sigil. Uh, of Bond 007 that comes straight from Dr. John D, who was uh, Queen Elizabeth I's court astrologer and spy when she when he went into the Holy Roman Empire, um, trying to sabotage Rudolph II. Whenever he wrote a correspondence back to her or Walsingham, he signed it 007. And of course, the symbol, the sigil, is meant to represent spy glasses, glasses with a line over them and then the sign, meaning that he was her eyes in the field and that the correspondence was for her eyes only, which is where that phrase comes which from. Which was a movie. Oh, uh, damned. Wow. Ah. So, so, I mean, you know, and then, then when, you, when you're dealing with the Bond movies, just, you know, it's, it's sort of the same thing over and over again, where you have Bond, you know, and, and you know, one of the things with D with Dee's philosophy was it, it, it's really the foundation for what was something known as Rosicrucianism, which was this mystical reformation that was supposed to go on in the early 17th century. It was really the Rosicrucians, at least the movement was designed as a bulkhead to turn back the Jesuits and the counter-reformation. Dee's philosophy underlies it. And, you know, the Rosicrucians were into alchemy and, and magic and sorcery and mysticism. And again, you, you find these elements present in the Bond stories where you have the whole idea of coincidentia oppositorum, uh, the union of opposites, the male and female, where Bond, you know, is, is ultimately confronted by this megalomaniac uh, supervillain, whether it be, you know, the alchemist or a goldfinger who is trying to turn, you know, metal or gold, make it worthless in Fort, in Fort Knox. you got the dragon, Hugo Drax. you got the Illuminati, Illuminati character, Blofeld, who wants to take over the world. And it's always the same sort of thing where Bond, you know, has to unify with the sacred feminine, the Bond girl, which spiritually then equips him to go on and, and defeat the, you know, supervillain. Um, and again, this comes wow. out of alchemy, spiritual alchemy, Rosicrucianism, which pervades the Bond stories. Um, and, and, even, and even with uh, Crowley, you will find, you know, Crowley popping up in, 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 in the Fleming stories, uh, Blofeld um, reflects Crowley. There's a, um, there's one of the stories, I believe it's uh, uh, the, the one, um, the spy who loved me, but don't hold me to that. But I think that's what it is where mm-hmm. Blofeld fakes his coat of arms. And this reflects Crowley because Crowley thought, thought himself was, he, he considered himself a fraud um, a lot of times. And then the character in Casino Royale, Le Schiff, the villain, who was a sadomasochist, that also reflects Crowley, who was a sadomasochist. So, um, yeah, you definitely get this hermetic occult influence upon Fleming, which naturally spills over into the films. Um, and again, you, you find this Amazing. not only with Fleming, but with Dennis Wheatley, um, who also hung around with Crowley and who also hung around with Fleming. Uh, you get, you get um, Wheatley's novel, The Devil Rides Out, which was made into a movie by Hammer in 1968. And you got the character of Mokata in that, who was played by Charles Gray. Uh, that's an obvious Crowley analog. Yeah. Well, that, I, I never even, so, so, I mean, Crowley's something, the guy's got, the guy got around. I mean, we did a, oh, uh, yeah. we did an episode on Jack Parsons and the whole partnership that, you know, he had with him. I it just, yeah, it's just amazing. I, I never even put Fleming in him in the, in the same boat. That's, that's crazy. 
Oh. oh yeah, I mean, I mean, it, it, Crowley, you know, is definitely one of those interesting characters coming out of the world of hermeticism. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're right; he goes all over the place. I mean, he's in Hollywood at one point. Mm-hmm. He's traveling around the United States. Um, there's all kind of stories about this with J. Edgar Hoover. Um, you know, kind of, you know, Hoover. Hoover suspected that he was a spy, um, and there's a couple. The, the theory was Hoover left him alone. Hoover Hoover never really kind of went after Crowley. Um, and there was reasons for that. And the, the, the two prevailing reasons was Crowley was a Freemason and so was J. Edgar Hoover. So there was this kind of wink-wink between oh, the two of them. Gotcha. And okay. the other reason was, was that Hoover was likely a closet homosexual. And there's a shot that Crowley knew that and may have exposed him for it um, if, if Hoover wanted to play, you know, hardball. That's at least theories. Um, but you know, um, you know, Hoover kept a close eye on Crowley, but he never went after him. Like he did guys like John Lennon and people like that. Right. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, Hoover's files that he had on everybody damn near in the nation. I mean, exactly. Just, yeah. Yeah. Just absolutely. The guy was a nut pot for sure. You know, but there's that. Um, did that answer your question, Josh at all? <laughs> yeah. Just, uh, like as a little aside, I internet, internet rumors would have it also be that Christopher Lee was, uh, Ian Fleming's, uh, uncle, and he based the Bond character a lot off of uh, Christopher Lee's exploits during World War II. Hmm. So that's uh, just a fun, interesting little side note, I guess. But yeah, that answered my question. Yeah, that, that's cra- that's crazy. So he, I'm curious on this. We talk about movies that stem from books. You know, of course, Fleming's an example. You know, you talked about Star Wars earlier in the show. Um, but then there's movies that Really, they're not based on a book. They're just based on a script. What Matrix maybe would be a good example of that. Do you find that there's more hidden analogy and hidden things in a movie that's based off of a book that's planted, or off just a, a script that somebody had came up with? Yeah, it's it's a great question. Um, it can go. It varies. It can go both ways. Um, there are some instances where I believe, and you know, you watch a you watch a movie like the House with the Clock in Its Walls, which is based on a book by John Belaris, um, which, in my opinion, the movie picks up on some of it. But I my, I haven't read the book, but when I watched the movie, I, I walked away with the impression of there's probably more in the book that maybe some of the filmmakers missed or kind of skimped out on. Um, is that the that, Jack Black? Is that right? Yeah, that's yeah, it. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, that's, a- that's one I, I analyzed in Cinema Symbolism 3 because um, there's definitely undercurrents in that movie. But I got a feeling that they got a lot of it right, but maybe they left out a little bit that maybe Polaris, you know, kind of was hinting at in the book that they didn't pick up on. Mm-hmm. Um, so in that case, you know, you get the idea that maybe there was more in the book um, than the movie makers actually put in the movie. And then you have the exact opposite with things like The Shining by Stephen King, where it's a ghost story and Stanley Kubrick gets a hold of it and basically turns it into an Ouroboros, where just everything repeats itself um, to convey this idea of reincarnation. So there's no really one answer. And I, I guess um, that's always something I'm talking about, you know, and I, I kind of, you know, sort of predicate and caveat um, whenever I analyze a movie or when I do a discussion about it is um, all this material um, the, you know, when, when you're analyzing a movie, it's got to be done individually. Um, you got to look at the movie in of itself. There's no universality to it. Um, you know, like you, you know, some some movies pick up on books and incorporate the symbolism in the book. Some add stuff. Some 
don't add stuff. Um, sure. Some take it, you know, like Kubrick did with The Shining, take it and run with it in a totally different direction. Um, and again, and and this this is also something that I'm constantly stretching, stressing um, when, I, especially you know, when when I'm writing and when I'm doing podcasts such as this, is um, beware of falling into the trap of seeing something on screen and it has symbolic meaning and then seeing it again in another meaning in another movie and thinking it has the same meaning. That is a, a fallacy. Um, A a symbol in one movie could have one meaning and then something else in in another movie could have a completely alternative meaning. Mm -hmm. What has to be examined is the surrounding circumstances um, that the theme or the symbol or the undercurrent is presented. Um, This is something I'm constantly stressing um, in my research that just because you see it in one movie and it has meaning there, if you see it in another movie, it may have meaning, but it might be different. Um, It may not be, but it may. Well, it's um, kind of that like always that yeah that always has to be borne in mind. It's kind of one of those things where you know really be careful not falling down that rabbit hole because you can. I mean, if you really want to, right? So yeah, I, I mean, I mean, I'll just I'll just end it on this. I mean, the one thing the one thing I, I can definitely say for certainty is when I analyze these movies is these filmmakers are very adroit with this material. I mean, they are experts with it, some more mm-hmm. than others. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, when you get a filmmaker who knows what they're doing or a producer or a cinematographer, you know, and they, and they collaborate and they know what they're doing. Believe me, this is, it can be very potent. And, um, you know, you know, you, you know, it's, it, it varies from filmmaker to filmmaker, the sophistication, but when you get these guys who really know what they're doing, it's very powerful. Sure. Sure. Well, I was wondering if you could, uh, expand on the shining for me. Yeah. Oh, sure. Tie into that real quick too, because I was just gonna say, speaking of The Shining and Kubrick, what about Room Two Thirty Seven? Like, have you seen that documentary? Answer John's question first. (laughs) Yeah. No. No. With with The Shining, um, well, there's there's two breakdowns with The Shining. I mean, you've got the conspiracy with the Two Three Seven and the rocket launch and the Apollo Eleven, which I'm familiar with. there, there seems to be as crazy as it's going to be as it may sound. There seems to be some truth to this, um, because, um, you know, if you're familiar with if you're familiar with the movie, I'm talking about the scene where Danny is wearing the Apollo 11 sweater and he stands up and it's supposed to resemble a rocket launch, and then he goes into room two three seven, and you know this is symbolic of of uh, Apollo 11 going to the moon in the late 80s. Excuse me, in the late 70s, um, the moon was 237 thousand miles from the Earth, so this is you know Danny going to to the moon, and and this is of course supposed to represent that Kubrick was the guy um, who filmed the footage for nasa they couldn't they may have gone to the moon but they couldn't film there so um kubrick you know shot the guys in a in a sound studio leaping around uh things like that and the theory is that the government had seen movies like strange love in 2001 and was very impressed with the way kubrick filmed them so they retained kubrick's services to film this moon landing um in a sound studio somewhere as crazy as this may sound this is not actually a stretch um, and one of the smoking guns is this on this, and this is something I talk about in CS3, is the movie that Kubrick actually made prior to The Shining, which is a movie that came out in the mid-1970s called Barry Lyndon. Um, and in that movie, it takes place during the Napoleonic Wars, and Kubrick wanted to film scenes strictly by candlelight. Well, if you know anything about movie making, you know that can't be done. They're not bright enough. Right. Um, you, you always have to have some sort of uh, you know ulterior offset lighting source to, you know, for it. I mean, it won't work. It's too dark. Uh, believe it or not, um, in the mid-1970s, in the early 70s, late 60s, NASA had figured out a way to do this. Believe it or not, um, 
and Kubrick went to NASA um, to shoot Barry Lyndon and actually borrowed lenses from NASA um, to film his movie. Um, so there are scenes in Barry Lyndon that are strictly lit or illuminated by candlelight. And you could thank NASA for that. Hmm. Kubrick went to NASA and got the lenses for it. Um, well, how, how, how is this possible? I mean, of course, the answer, the question answers itself. It's because Kubrick was well-connected to NASA for filming the moon landing footage, so they gave it to him. Um, so the idea of um, Kubrick filming the, 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 the moon, you know, staging the moon landing is not as far-fetched as it may sound. Um, that's certainly, you know, one of the things in The Shining that's going on. The other thing is, and this to me was really the more interesting element of it, is this level that Kubrick, this obsessive level that Kubrick goes to in the in the in the Shining, um, to generate repetitive tropes, whether it's numbers or or or, or just you know imagery, everything right, right. in the Shining repeats. Um, characters say dialogue back to each other. Numbers repeat, um, and the reason why Kubrick blasts the subconscious mind of the viewer um, with this repetition is to convey that the Overlook Hotel is nothing but an Ouroboros. It's a symbolic snake biting its own tail. Um, and, you know, like, you know, it, it, I, I took I took it on in Cinema Symbolism 2, um, where I just enumerate all the repetition going on. Um, I don't have the material in front of me, but like, for example, because um, I've been asked, to, when, I, when I was doing the rounds for Cinema Symbolism 2, I actually had to have this written down because... Um, I can't remember it all, but like, for example, um, one of the numbers that Kubrick repeats is the number 12. Mm -hmm. I mean, and, and, and you'll see it all over the place um, when you know how to look for it. Um, Jack throws the ball against the wall 12 times. He hits the door with the ax 12 times. Danny and Wendy take 12 terms in the hedge mage. Um, this is the sort of thing that, uh, Kubrick just blasts your subconscious mind with is, is repetition. And it's, it's, he uses, um, uh, duality. He uses um, tropes uh, regarding twins and duality that he is constantly repeating and showing you over and over and over again. And again, the 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 purpose for this is is to convey that this that the Overlook Hotel is this uh, you know Ouroboros. It's this serpent biting its tail. This uh, you know repetition that's just doomed to repeat over and over and over again. And he just completely bombards the viewer quite subconsciously with repetitive tropes and duality. Um, and it's quite astounding. Um, I, I documented in cinema symbolism too, but it's one of the real subtleties uh, that's going on inside the shining. Man, I've got to go watch that movie again because I don't think I got half of what you said. I did I mean, like the 12, I it shows up, but uh, yeah, that's amazing. That's absolutely. Uh, wow. Yeah. I mean, I mean, and it's all about doubles um, right. in the shining. It's all doubles. Like when he, like, for example, when Jack, is uh driving to the overlook uh at the very beginning um he passes four cars two are stationary two are moving Mm -hmm. um again it's it's you know there's two sets of twins there's the little girls in the overlook um you know the the two specters and then when Ullman is showing jack their quarters they pass two adult twins um so it's constantly you know i mean jack torrance has two 20s and two 10s in his wallet um, there's two, there's two, what is it? What is Bangor, Maine? And, and another Bangor is mentioned. Everything occurs in doubles in the shining. Um, and when you're onto it, you'll see it. Um, you know, and, and it's, it's really a deep study because it, it, it just go, shows you the length that these filmmakers will go to, to incorporate these occult undercurrents, duality and doubles and repetition. That's all the shining is. That's, that's yeah. absolutely and amazing. That kind of makes me think, and I've never thought about this before, but, with those doubles 
there's also the duality of like the good and evil of like, you know, you have good Jack and you have bad Jack and you have the, the sexy lady in the shower. And then all of a sudden she's disgusting looking and um, mm. off the top of my head, those are the only two I can think about um, because I've just never really thought about this movie in that way. But is there anything to that or is I don't know. Is that just? <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah, no, it, it is. It's all. It, it's all about. It's all about duality, good and evil, yeah. light and dark. I mean, this is again. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the, the this is the whole concept of light and dark, good and evil. This is something that pervades movies, especially. Um, you know, horror films. I mean, they, they begin, you know, Jack Torrance arrives at the overlook on Halloween and then it becomes dark. It's winter. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, this is when the ghosts come out to play Um, the exorcist with William Friedkin. The movie begins in the heat of the desert. The sun is out and then it degrades into the autumn and winter months where you're in the bedroom with a girl. It's dark. You can see her breath. It's cold out. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, there's this, constant interplay in these movie horror movies um especially with ghosts and demons where it's light versus dark that's a very pervasive theme and the filmmakers are very are very subtle um with doing it i mean mm-hmm. this is something that both Friedkin and, and kubrick did and, and and they and they did it it's when um when when Ullman is explaining to jack the operating hours of the overlook he says it's open from mid-may to october 30th so you know he's arriving on halloween that's a psychological trigger um that's a a you know that's the um you know the mic the macrocosm the ecliptic the movement of the sun affecting the mind of the people on earth um you know you know it's 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 the ecliptic it's as above so below Mm -hmm. uh and of course you know that now it's you know it's halloween the winter months are coming darkness is raining the ghosts and demons can come out to play light is decreased mm-hmm. Friedkin does the same thing in, in the exorcist when chris is walking home she passes the trick-or-treaters that's a trigger in your subconscious mind to tell you it's the end of all it's you know it's the end of hollow it's the end of october darkness winter is on its way you know the light is decreased darkness and evil reigns right. um the weather that that's a very you know this is something filmmakers are constantly playing around with. Guillermo de Toro in Crimson Peak does the exact same thing um, with Allardale Hall. When they get there, it's dark and gloomy. It's winter. Um, but the movie starts in the sunlight. Uh, again, this is something, that, you know, the whole idea of the movement of the sun, the ecliptic darkness, light. Um, this is something these filmmakers love toying around with. Mm-hmm. That's that's amazing. Um, Rob, we're going to take a quick break and we're going to come sure. back with that right there. That is a great leaping point because we've got a, a little bit more to discuss here. Um, everybody stand by. We'll be back with Rob Sullivan after these messages. Believe in UFOs? Felt that chill up your spine that you just can't explain? Contemplate the other side of reality. Do you shake your head at the world that seems to have lost its common sense? Well, look no further than Strange Uncles. Find them on all podcast platforms and call their hotline to tell your side of reality at 801-252-6945. Open the gates. All right, and we are back with Rob Sullivan. Um... You led right into the, one of the questions I had. When you look at different types of movies, whether they be sci-fi, horror, uh, drama, you know, you name it, is there any one certain genre that has more symbolism than any other one? 
Boy, that's a great question. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I, 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 my answer kind of off my, the top of my head is no, um, because you can find this stuff and you can find archetypal imagery in almost all sorts of films. Mm-hmm. I always find that horror, probably just for me, because I'm a horror junkie, is probably one of my favorite genres to take apart. But, um, you know, when when I do the books, the one thing I'm always, you know, I always want to do is give a wide variety of films um, that I analyze. And I don't, don't stick to horror. I do the action films. Uh, I've done comedies. Um, you know, again, where you're dealing with, you know, certain archetypal imagery. Uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was just watching um, the one Ghostbusters Afterlife. Oh, um, I was going to ask you if you saw that yet or not. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, there's lots going on in that. That's uh, that's interesting. Um, I've I've done comedies. Um, you know, I've analyzed comedies. So no, I wouldn't say. I mean, I've done romantic movies, erotic movies, um, mm-hmm. movies like Black Swan, Nine and a Half Weeks, Fatal Tra- a Fatal Attraction, um, Adrian Line. Um, those movies are are replete with all sorts of uh, occult themes and images. Sure. So, um, you know. I would say the, to answer your question is, um, I, you know, I, I find it in a lot of genres, but for me personally, probably analyzing horror just because I'm a horror junkie is probably like, you know, you your, know, your, your, your go to your go to. Um, well, let's let's back up a little bit past that then. If you what do you think are the top directors and or writers, I suppose, script writers in Hollywood that are the best? You know, we talk about Stanley Kubrick and, and his work, and, and all of his work is amazing. Everything I've ever seen sure. him behind is just fascinating just because of how it's filmed. He just has that eye. Is there one director that stands out from another one that really just, man, they've got this shit down. They know what well, they're doing. Well, let me ask you this. Are we talking living or dead or all of Hollywood? No, let's just go all. Let's do it broad oh. real quick. All right. Well, I mean, there's there. If we're going all Hollywood, then there's a lot to talk about. Um, I mean, some of the directors that come to mind, um, past and present, I would go with uh, David Lynch, mm. Ari, Ari, Ari Aster, uh, Darren Aronofsky, Stanley Kubrick, Alfred Hitchcock. Uh, those are some of the ones. I mean, Lucas, Robert Zemeckis, uh, Spielberg to an extent. Um, those are some of the ones. Adrian Line, who I, I mentioned, those are some of the ones off the top of my head. Um, that, you know, when you say, you know, come to me as, yeah, these are the like sort of the guys who are the most sure. sophisticated, you know, yeah. filmmakers. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, so I don't want to forget about it, actually. Let's go. I'd like to get into because I have some favorite. I mean, well, we all have favorite movies. But the one question I had when when we're talking about this and, and again, you know, th- this is your forte. This way you look at these, you look at the symbolism, what's hidden in the movies. Are there ever a time when you go? You know what? That could be something, but I don't think it is. You know, we talk about synchronicities and these other things. A good example, and I'm looking at some of your show notes here. You know, the Matrix in '99. You know, Neo's passport expires in 9/11/01. Like, are there really some things that you can just go? You know what? That's a coincidence. That's eh, not really. They didn't really write that in. Or do you think this? It's more of a possibility that no, if it's in there, more than likely it's shadow. It's foreshadowing something. It's discreet. It's unweaving something in the background. What's your viewpoints on that? Uh, yeah, it's, it, it depends. Um, if it was just one thing, I would be willing to write it off as coincidence. But when you see nine 11 imagery all over the place and especially right before the event, then you're out of the world of coincidence. Right. And again, if, 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 if the, if it's happening right before the event, then you, then it's a head scratcher. And you know, then, then you're into, another reality then you're kind of crossing into this supernatural realm of collective unconscious prophecy you know how is this being accounted for um 9-11 is is a particularly interesting phenomenon so much so 
that I'm actually in the cinema symbolism four, which I'm working on right now. I'm going to do a whole chapter on nine 11, just because it, it, it's, it's so eerie and so crazy. Um, the lead up to that, to the event, the, the things turning up in film, but nine 11, isn't the only example. Um, uh, there's several of them. Um, the uh, China Syndrome movie, I believe, which came out in 79 or 80, mm-hmm. um, right before that came out, I think two weeks before that it came out, um, was Three Mile Island. I mean, that's just uncanny. Oh, yeah. Um, huh. I'm not going to – I, I mentioned this, and I'm not trying – I'm not in any way, shape, or form I'm going to start a political debate, but um, Trump is prophesized in many uh, media um, his ascension to the presidency is foreshadowed in movies and TV commercials. Um, so that's another one. I know. Simpsons, um, regard, right? Regardless of what you think of him, it's 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 definitely there. Um, so uh, it's it's not only nine eleven. And and my to, to answer the question is, if I saw it once, it's it's like when when it's like when I analyze a movie. If I saw it once or twice, I'm or you know, it goes back to like the Masonic symbolism. You know, if I saw it once or twice, or if I saw a building aligned, or I saw it a little bit here, I might be able to chalk it up as coincidence. But when you see it just overloading you, mm-hmm. I mean, you see these same themes and tropes and imagery and symbolism turning up over and over and over, and over again. Um, the lawyer in me has to remove this out of the realm of coincidence, and I guess. This is sort of one of the things and I've been on other shows. I mentioned this before. This is sort of the test I lay down for myself is um, whenever I analyze a movie and I break it down esoterically, um, sort of the standard that I hold myself out to is I have to be convinced of it. Um, you know, I, I just don't watch a movie and just say, oh, you know, let me just make up something. Right. Um, I mean, I have to be convinced of what I'm seeing that it's actually happening. So, you know, the standard I hold for myself is when I write these books is, you know, would I be happy presenting this to a judge and jury? And if the answer is yes, then I write about it and it goes in the book. If the answer is no, um, you know, or maybe this is just one time, you know, or something like that, then I kind of leave it out. Um, but no, with, when you're talking about the nine 11 material and, you know, you know, though, I mean, there is definitely something to that. Yeah. Yeah. We hear that a lot with nine 11. There's so many different, you know, and again, we, we really try where this, we don't really go into conspiracies much on this podcast because it can be so volatile. You know, you, you got people that, that believe in different things. We try not to do, but agreed, there is a lot of uh, different symbolism for nine eleven. One thing that I, I wanted to ask you, and I, I think we can kind of get into this, unless John, Josh, you got anything else um, in regards to? Uh, I was I was going to say, uh, speaking about the nine eleven conspiracies and like movies and stuff, and just on this subject, the only thing I've ever kind of seen that kind of relates to this is the Big Lebowski. And I'm not sure if you've seen that. I, I'm, I assume you have. <laughs> I don't know who hasn't. I'm, not, I'm nodding in agreement. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, when he at the very beginning of the movie, he's getting his half and half and he goes and checks out um, and he writes a check for 69 cents. And the date is September 11th. I can't remember the year. 1991. Uh, yeah, and mm. George Bush Sr. is on the TV saying, you know, this ag- aggression against Kuwait will not stand. And, I mean, though I, I saw this years and years and years ago, and I was just like, that is so – just such the most wild coincidence that Bush Sr. is on, and he's writing a check on September 11th. Um, and that's probably the one and only thing that I've ever seen. Oh, there's or- there's way more than that. The, the, the thing with the Big Lebowski that was interesting was um, that date of September 11, 1991, that is the date in reality that George Bush 41 
gave his new world order speech. Um, and it was 10 years to the date of 9-11. Oh. Um, but the stuff with 9-11 leading up to it is uncanny. I mean, you have in the Matrix, uh, you have Neo Anderson's passport expiring on the exact date mm-hmm. of 9-11-01. Um, in the Patriot, um, Mel Gibson, uh, 2000, at the very beginning of the movie, when he um, is making the chair, he puts it on the scales and he weighs in. It, it's nine pounds, 11 ounces. And he sits on and he comes crumbling down. Uh, the lone gunman pilot that came out in March of 2001, which is about terrorists hijacking airliners and crashing them into the World Trade Center. Fight Club in 1999. Tyler Durden refers to the destruction of the um, financial buildings as ground zero. Um, it goes on and on. Um, yeah. And it, it, it really and the Big Lebowski is one. Um, Mm-hmm. And it, it really is. And the, the thing that the thing that's amazing with 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 nine eleven that's really astounding is the closer you get to the main event, the more pervasive it is. Um, it's not like it's scattered out here or there or, or something like that. The closer you get to the actual event, the more the symbolism occurs. That's what makes it particularly creepy. Yeah, like I'm checking the dates that the movies that we're talking about came out, and it's all like ninety eight to like ninety nine. <laughs> Maybe. 2000. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. and what, what makes it particularly screwy and what makes it even more weird is a lot of the movies that feature this 9-11 imagery, not all of them, but a lot of them are these Gnostic films that deal with death and resurrection and, and the end of the old and the beginning of the new. Um, and, and, and that's really, really strange. Mm. Um, and, 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 and what makes it even more peculiar is all these movies came out at the end of the turn of the, at the turn of the millennium, you know, whether it be, you know, the, the, there was this slate of Gnostic films hit between about 1997 to about 01, right at the turn of the millennium. I mean, it's all, you know, The Matrix, The Truman Show, Fight Club, Donnie Darko, Existence, Vanilla Sky. Why? The, um, I mean, do you yeah. think it, do you think it's because, of it, it and again, I'm kind of stretching here. Is it because of a of a global universal subconscious that we're not aware of, or do it's just because we realize that hey, we're getting into the 2000s, and so that's what they were writing about because this was something that was going to be different and new, and it could crash and all this stuff. Like, what's the like reason? Like Y2K syndrome. Yeah, kind of. yeah. I think I think it's a I think it's the product of what Jung called the collective unconscious, and I think it's it's coming out of the world of the supernatural. That's what I think. Um, Interesting. You know, I, I mean, you know, there, it just it just strikes me as somewhat hard to believe that a bunch of Hollywood producers are sitting around saying, "Let's just do a slate of Gnostic movies all at the same time." This seems to be more psychological um, mm-hmm. to me, and, and it seems to be um, a psychological undercurrent that people may not even be aware of. And that to me makes it even more fascinating. Um, oh, and, and, the fa- and, and, and the fact that um, these movies all hit at the same time, they all have the same theme and they all, and a lot of them feature this nine 11 Im- imagery is just, you know, it casts this into the realm of the unreal and the supernatural, but it has to be talked about because it happened. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. And I, and I, and I think there's something to, to say about that. We actually had a guest on that was talking about subconscious and your conscious mind, maybe your mind's not doing it. Maybe it's picking up from somewhere else, and, and that would be a good, you know, we've got a Mandela Effect episode that we want to do because that's fascinating, fascinating how you have such a group of people, millions, that they they absolutely believe something happened. Like, it it just reminds it just a strange thing. Oh, I, I, I've, I've been subject, I've, I've had the Mandela Effect happen to me. Um, oh, I have I have vivid memories of in about 2011, 2012 of the actor Ronnie Cox dying. Um, I don't know if you know who he is. He was Bogomil 
in the Beverly Hills Cop movies. He was the villain in Total Recall. I specifically remember on um, watching Entertainment Tonight um, of re- reporting his death. I remember seeing um, on Twitter, uh, Eddie Murphy had released a statement about his death. And so had Arnold Schwarzenegger. I remember this vividly. And um, when I was writing one of the books, one of the things I do is when I, I mention an actor who has deceased, I put in, I put in parentheses after it, um, you know, when, when with the birth and death date. So, for example, if I mentioned Bella, Lug- I do it one time. So if I mentioned Bella Lugosi, um, I, I, the first time I mentioned him, I put in parentheses, you know, 1889 to 1957 or whenever it was. So I'm writing the book. and I mentioned Ronnie. So I'm thinking, oh, I got to go find his life and death dates. I remember he died. So I go on Google and I find out he's still alive. Um, oh, and, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, I mean, I, I you know, I, I, I'm like, what? You know, I mean, I remember him dying. Um, the one and I, I don't want to belabor this. I was on a, I was on with a guy, um, a show um, who had a podcast and he had vivid. I didn't have the same memory, but he had vivid memories of the guy, Stan Lee. The guy who invented basically Marvel Comics, yep. dying about five years before he actually died, and he had told me, he said, he said, I think Stanley died whenever it was in 2019. He said I remember him dying in about 14. He said, and I actually did a radio show with guests about Stanley dying. He said I told my producer, go pull up that show from 2014 we did when Stan Lee died. And when they went to the episode, it was erased. Um, (laughs) So yeah, that the Mandela effect is something really strange. It's just, it's absolutely amazing. Well, why you were talking about that subject. I, and this is another thing that we're kind of contemplating doing, but it just, it fascinates me and maybe I'm reading too much into it, but from every, the Simpsons, isn't it odd that the Simpsons have predicted so many things that have come to fruition? Yeah, it, it really it really is incredible. I, I was tinkering, and I might do a, 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 a chapter on The Simpsons. And The Simpsons is another 9-11 one um, where you have a reference to 9-11. And what, what makes that one with The Simpsons peculiar, and it ties in with Fight Club, is the episode that it happened in was right around September 11th when it aired, only a few years earlier. Um, and same with Fight Club. That movie was released almost right around September 11th. So, yeah, I mean, The Simpsons predict a lot of stuff. Um, it's it's definitely a strange phenomenon of Hollywood cinema, Hollywood entertainment becoming prophetic. Um, and there's definitely something to it. There's no question about it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think that I feel like it ties into some strange collective consciousness and we somehow are all linked into what is going to happen, but it's so mm-hmm. buried deep in the subconscious, but it bubbles up right around this time. I mean, like none of it makes sense to me, but like, you know, I, I, I don't know how to make sense of that, but yeah, yeah, it seems yeah. I mean, like you, that you, would you, be you, the you, only. Yeah, you can. It's it's what Young called synchronicity, where mm-hmm. it's these things are interconnected, but there's it's a supernatural explanation that we have no answer for. One of the things I document in the book, um, I talk about it briefly in Cinema Symbolism One. I fleshed it out much more in CS Three. Was Elvis Presley um, and how he is connected to the sun? Um, his entire life oh. is based on the movement of the sun. Um, and it is uncanny, um, the, the nexuses between Elvis, Aaron Presley and the sun. And it is just absolutely astounding and it can't be explained. I have no explanation for it, but it's there. I've never heard of that before. That's yeah. Now, now I'm curious. Now, well, what, uh, what, what, what's that all about? <laughs> Elvis Presley born under the sign of cancer of, of Capricorn, which is the, uh, winter sun solstice when the sun is born again. 
um, dies in the house of of Leo the Lion in August, which is ruled by the sun. Sun Records um, wears the Mayan jumpsuits with the sun, um, was virgin birthed um, when he was first on uh, the Ed Sullivan show, which occurred on September 9th under the sign of Virgo. It's over and over again that uh, dies reading a book on Jesus Christ, the Shroud of Turin. Of course, Jesus is a solar avatar. Um, you know, this is why he's the king of rock and roll, right? I mean, Apollo is the sun god um, who, you know, it births music. And that's what Elvis was. He was this Apollonian solar deity um, in the flesh. And when you look at Elvis from his life, from his birth to the end, it's all nothing but the sun. That's crazy. That's I've never, I ne- that never even, yeah, that's, that's amazing. That is amazing. Wow. Um, so I'm going to be selfish a little bit and, and I have some movies that I really, really enjoy. And I saw one that was in your notes and I'm curious on your viewpoints on them. You mentioned the Ghostbusters new one or Ghostbusters in general, just one, two, and you know, the afterlife one, what, what did you pick up out of the new one? Anything? Oh, Ghostbusters Resurrection. Oh no! What was uh, it? Afterlife. It was Afterlife. Afterlife. Yeah. Afterlife. I'm thinking of Matrix Resurrection. Ghostbuster <laughs> is the Afterlife. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the one thing um, there's tons of Easter eggs in that thing to the earlier movies. Oh, um, yeah. The one thing that I like that they did was um, the whole thing with the the little girl. This was the, um, the, the, the there's there's a couple things going on. I'm not going to get into the Easter eggs because they're kind of somewhat easy to see. But I mean, I can if you want me to. But there's there's some things very interesting going on with McKenna Grace, um, who was the girl who played Phoebe. Mm-hmm. Um, this is Egon Spangler's uh, granddaughter. Um, what makes her casting unique is um, she she's placed in there um, to draw on another movie. This, this is something Hollywood does that loves to do is, is is they love to use actors and actresses from other movies to sort of bring in their cinematic baggage with them in, and invest into this new movie. Right. Um, and McKenna Grace um Right before, what, I mean, what is she doing? Ghostbusters, right? She's running around trapping evil ghosts. Um, what was the movie she made right before Ghostbusters? What was Annabelle Comes Home? Well, what is she doing that? Well, she's running around and battles demons. So the whole idea of casting uh, McKenna Grace um, as, as this little girl battling demons comes from Annabelle Comes Home, where she did the same thing. So by casting her, that sort of brings in the baggage of the Conjuring films and sort of you know, in your subconscious mind places the idea that the girl is really battling these evil entities because she has this nexus to the conjuring films. Um, and the other thing they did with her that was really unique, um, is, um, pay attention to her footwear. Um, the next time you watch it, um, it's red shoes. It's the retelling of the wizard of Oz, where it's the outsider as the hero. Um, it's this little girl coming from the city, going to the strange land, which is out West, the farm, right? Mm -hmm. And um, she's in a new world. Um, She's wearing the red shoes and she's battling demons. And this, of course, is designed to draw on the Wizard of Oz, where Dorothy Gale goes to this magical new land and battles the Wicked Witch. Um, So you have this very deep, subtle um, Wizard of Oz subcurrent going on in Ghostbusters Afterlife, which I very much enjoyed. I I thought that really catapulted it into sort of this mythological state 
Um, and I, I very much enjoyed that. So, you know, and then you can get it. I mean, we could talk about the Easter eggs where, oh, let's see here. Um, what's some, what's some of the good ones? Oh, there's I mean, tons. there's t- like literally the toaster on the counter and the house is the same toaster from Ghostbusters too. Yeah. Like, and you got the, just, the, the book, know, yeah. the, the stacked books, which, which come mm-hmm. from, uh, the first Ghostbusters movie, you know, when they're in the library, right. there's loads of that going on. Um, you know, in, in, in the, uh, in Ghostbusters resurrections, um, which I liked also, but I love the wizard of Oz under current and i love the casting of mechanic race um designed to draw in the conjuring films yeah. uh, very, very well done yeah I, I never thought about the red shoes that that's that's interesting um one of my favorite movies and you mentioned in your notes that i want to pick your brain on because i love it and and i i mean i i just because of how it's filmed how it's done it's a it's a very older movie um dark city Oh right! Oh sure. Yeah. This is uh, this is another um, uh, one of the Gnostic films. Um, this came out. I mean, in fact, um, if 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 it wasn't for Neo Anderson, um, John Murdoch would probably be remembered as probably the greatest example of a Valentinian Christ uh, to ever grace the big screen. I mean, yeah. I mean, this is a straight Gnostic film where you know you have John Murdoch as the illuminating uh, Christ figure trying to resurrect the people. Um, you know, out of their stasis, out of their darkness. I mean, this is the same thing Neo does in, in The Matrix. Mm-hmm. Um, the strangers in that movie serve uh, two things in Gnosticism proper. One, one is one is kind of more obvious than the other is um, they, of course, play the role of the Archons. Um, and these are the agents in The Matrix. And the Archons' sole purpose is to be agents of the Demiurge and to keep humankind asleep keep them in stasis, keep them from having spiritual awakening, spiritual growth. Mm-hmm. This is the same role that the agents play in the, in the matrix films. Um, but the other thing that, that, that was unique in that is that the uh, strangers also reflect the idea of the aeons. Um, and these are these Gnostic, uh, these are, these are these entities that are spawned by this Supreme Godhead. Um, and they have a falling out. One of them named Sophia tries to examine this supreme godhead known as the Monad, um, which you're not supposed to do. And she gets cast out and they fall into ruination. And again, this is sort of reflective of what the strangers are trying to do. They're basically trying to commodify the unknown. Um, they're trying to reduce the human soul to a commodity. And that's why they're in ruination. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you're into Gnostic cinema and you and you like um, Gnostic themes in movies, yeah, definitely check out Dark City. That's a great movie. Um, it's one of my all-time favorites. And again, if, if you watch that and then you watch The Matrix, you kind of realize they're pretty much the same movie. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it's one of those things where I don't realize why I like a certain movie so much. Like, I just can't put my thumb on it. And maybe that's why. Maybe just subconsciously it's one of those things where, no, there's more here than, you know, than there really should be. But, um, yeah, yeah, absolutely amazing. Um, John, Josh, do you have something? I mean, I I'm, I feel we can keep you on forever, Rob. I, there's so many different things. Um, but I want to throw it to my co-hosts to see if they had a, a movie or another question or some one-offs. No, I, I, uh, I think it was pretty interesting. Um, well, I, yeah, no, I don't have any other questions. I, I like that when you said dark city and matrix and you kind of combine those two and I started thinking about it, I'm like, huh? Yeah. I, yeah. Shit. I, well, in fa- I guess in fact, there are a lot of similarities there. Well, in fact, in fact, not only are there are a lot of similarities, there are an actual, really a lot of similarities because, um, at the end of dark city, when they were done filming, the matrix used a lot of dark city sets. Um, in the matrix um, oh. and you will recognize them. Oh, uh, the scene um, where Trinity 
is running along the rooftop. That mm-hmm. rooftop set came from Dark City at the end when um, John Murdoch is having his tuning battle, um, I believe, with Mr. Book. Yeah. Um, and you'll yeah. recognize it. Um, it's the same rooftop. And then there's a scene in it where John Murdoch is, is going up the flight of steps in, in the building. Um, and it's the same set as Neo in the hotel room going up, uh, to meet, to meet, um, you know, to take the, to take the red pill. It's the same set. Hmm. Um, so when you, so not only are they the same movies, they're actually using the same damn sets. That's crazy. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah that that's that's insane well and especially i think what is it mr hand i think mr hand uh god what was his name brian he's the one that yeah, actually, that's uh that's riffraff, riffraff uh, from yeah, uh rocky right. horror yeah he did the whole script for rocky horror he's the one that, that wrote it and put it on uh put it on the place so just seeing him pop up you know he's an interesting character and i think that's another thing too it's just you know the characters that they pick for these things man i'd be a shitty director because i really can't put it you know like the the famous well who would you play if you know you were i just can't i never could come up with all <laughs> that i have no clue who would ever play me but some of these uh actors that they cast in roles man they they make or break that movie and and everything you're talking about all the insides all the you know, it's just absolutely amazing you know so Wow. Well, uh, since we're talking about The Matrix, I did want to ask if you did see the new one and uh, what you thought about it. I have not. I have yet to see Matrix um, Resurrection. It's on my to-do list to see. Um, I know it came out on Blu-ray, I think, today or very recently. Um, so I definitely will be getting that. But no, I have not watched it yet. How many uh, movies do you have in your collection right now? Physical copies. I'd have to sit around and count them up, but it pro- probably quite a Ballpark. few. Uh, a couple hundred, probably. <laughs> okay, all right. Hundred, yeah, I was hundred, just curious. Yeah, hundred, maybe two hundred. I have a uh, Blu-ray. I have mostly Blu-ray, but I also have a lot of. I have some DVD also. So okay. yeah. Yeah, interest. And the only one last question I have before before I let you go, and and again, sure. you know, you're fantastic for your time and and everything. It's, oh, it's just my pleasure forever. to be here. Um, do you find that the movies that are coming out nowadays, say within, say pre-COVID, the last two to four years. Do you think that they have still contain as much symbolism and hidden meaning as the ones prior? Do you think we have a shift there, or, or do you think there that, that's still kind of a thing that that oh, just oh I oh sure no I can answer that question no no this is the the, the movies today have symbolism um, this goes back to. Uh, I, I should mention this, and we'll wrap up with this: um, the use of sin- symbolism, occult under- undercurrents, things like that, in popular culture predate Hollywood. Um, you will find it at the very beginning of Hollywood with movies like Nosferatu and uh, Metropolis. You'll find it in the movies from the 30s and 40s, like The Wizard of Oz. Um, you'll find it in the James Bonds in the 60s. This this is pervasive um, from the get go to the present day of Hollywood, and it predates Hollywood. Um, you'll find occult undercurrents in the works of Shakespeare, the works of Christopher Marlowe, uh, the works of Richard Wagner, the works of Mozart, um, the use of occult themes and undercurrents in popular culture predates Hollywood. Um, It's been with Hollywood from the beginning and it's with them to this very day. That's amazing. That's uh, yeah, that's absolutely amazing, man. That's fantastic. I, you know, John, Josh, you have anything else on your side or. No, no. no, uh, Just thank you for coming on the show and sharing with us all this fascinating like knowledge and it's i love movies and it's super cool to think about all that other stuff that comes along with it so yeah just thank you for coming on yeah well no thank you guys for having me on the strange uncles podcast it was my pleasure and uh 
Um, we'll do it again. Uh, you know, like I said, we can always come back and talk with about a new slate of movies. But again, thank you for having me on. It was my pleasure to be here. Yeah. No, Is there anything that um, you'd like to promote? at all oh, yeah sure of course you go or yeah no absolutely if, if you were again thank you for having me on uh the show uh it was my pleasure to be here if you're interested in me or my books the easiest way is to go to my website uh my website is my name uh my name is robert w sullivan the fourth so my website is robert w sullivan iv the letter i the letter v roman numerals for the fourth.com robert w sullivan iv.com uh there are links to buy the books they're available in print and ebook form uh there's information about me there's information about upcoming shows i'll be doing um you know appearances uh go to the website it's very easy to navigate uh links to buy the books uh, they're on all the major online sellers amazon barnes and noble books a million www.robertwsullivaniv.com and again thank you guys for having me on tonight no that's awesome thank you rob yeah appreciate it, rob if you want to stay online we'll thank you off air um everybody sure. that was robert sullivan uh fantastic hope you enjoy as much as we did Yeah, um, amazing, personally. And, you know, and I'm not knocking on the guy. I don't. So, Rob, if you're listening, uh, the one thing I will say to you is, uh, uh, damn, you got more patience than I do because there's a lot of times when I sit down and watch a movie. That's all I want to do is watch a movie. I don't really, I'm, you know, depending on what the movie is, I'll either, you know, read into it a bit or I'll just kind of shut off my brain and go, cool, I get to sit here and watch a movie and not think about work or life for a while. I, you know, I, I couldn't imagine how <laughs> all the stuff that he picks apart and the amount of times he has to go back and rewatch a movie to pick up more things like just just amazing. Yeah. Well, it's also funny, too. I was kind of thinking when he was talking about uh, Star Wars uh, yeah. replicating movies from ancient Greece and all, or like stories from ancient Greece and everything yeah, yeah. And, and how I think about, you know, the Lion King remake and Aladdin, like everything now is just a remake. Like there's a new Beetlejuice coming out. And, but it's kind of funny that like, we've just been imitating art and remaking the same story over and over and over. Yeah. Well, for thousands of years, you know, regardless if it's a movie or a written book, like, you know, authors take from ancient stories. And I mean, it's just like constantly circulated. So um, the whole Joseph Campbell thing, uh, like his whole thesis was basically their mythical archetypes. I think uh, Rob referred to it as the monomyth. Um, I think uh, in Joseph Campbell's writings, it's referred to as the archetype. Uh, Jesus would be one of these, but it's like an, an archetype. So like the prototype of your mythical figure, right? So you've got your hero. And then the other part of that is the hero's journey. That's like a circle mm-hmm. that they go on where basically they're just a regular person living their lives. Something weird happens. They go onto the hero's road or the hero's trail or whatever. uh, And then they enter the underworld where all sorts of crazy fucked up shit happens. And then they come back around to basically going home and they're the same, but different now because they've had these experiences. Right. Um, And in really, really well crafted stories and myths and everything, uh, that is kind of a self-perpetuating circle where, especially if it's like a, a, a series, 
Um, and we're talking about fiction here because most myths don't run in series, but um, that'll just kind of keep happening, right? You know, yeah, yeah like Think a hamster like, wheel. Yep. Yeah, well, yeah, or like deploying for tours, like that kind of shit. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, the first time I went through all this shit, it changed me, and now I'm a little bit different, and I don't fit in where I was before. But I'm back there. Oh, and then yeah, yeah. another adventure comes along, and it's like, well, fuck yeah, I'm gonna go do that because where where I've ended up back at as a different person, no one understands me anymore. Right. And I think that that's pretty interesting. That's one interpretation of, of the whole, uh, cycle or the hero's journey and, and, um, and archetype archetypal myths. But I also think it's really interesting that, um, the, what we think of as ancient myths, like, especially from like the Greeks and the Romans and stuff, they're such good and compelling stories that we, keep retelling them and and it just gets into the way we tell stories no matter what right you know what i mean so i don't i don't know well i I think we're always going to be a story tell type of i mean that's us right i mean that's how we share history of course i mean you know that's never going to go away and as we you know we get technology now we're doing movies now we're doing i mean god knows you know 50 years from now what that's you know what that story is going to look like you know i I mean it's it's just crazy yeah it's just funny because like i just hear people like oh and i and i i'm guilty of it too like and Hollywood's not coming out with anything new, nothing new under the sun. And it's like, man, there hasn't been anything new under the sun since ancient Greece. Dude, but I wanted to (laughs) interject with that. And I just couldn't find the right spot of where he, when we were talking about like nine 11 and the lead up to the turn of the century and all that shit and how Mm -hmm. that was just kind of in the zeitgeist. Mm -hmm. And then how all of a sudden in the, maybe not right at the, turn of the century but the early 2000s everything's a fucking reboot and he was talking about the Ouroboros and like how a lot of the Gnostic films have themes of uh, of reincarnation and mm-hmm. so it's like oh shit that fucking totally makes sense that if this is a if you, if you want to attribute the great subconscious recognizing that an event was coming in 9-11, like in the late 90s movies. And then that happens. And then immediately within the next decade or so, every movie is a reboot or an adaptation of a novel or a Mm -hmm. graphic novel or something. There's nothing original because everything's being reborn. I thought like in that vein of thinking that was interesting. That's it. Well, and I didn't want to go too far down the rabbit hole on this one, but you know, we talk about it often. You know, you talk about group subconscious, you talk about synchronicity, you talk about, okay, you hypothetically say there's different levels of the world. Timelines are on different timelines. And when they talk about a movie coming out, you know, for some reason he said more and more, it was just before 9-11 and all this. Well, who's to say that there's not another timeline that the same thing happened is just a little askew. That's why these things are dropping at intervals that seem to be the same. Well, funny you would mention that because also in 1998, the movie The Siege came out starring Denzel Washington and Bruce Willis that was basically, uh, instead of people flying buildings into, or sorry, instead of people flying buildings. (laughs) Yeah, I want to see that that. movie. (laughs) Instead of people flying uh, planes into buildings, they were uh, bombing shit, but in New York City, and uh, and it basically games out what would happen in that situation that ends up with uh, 
Bruce Willis, who's a, a general in the army, like mm-hmm. ends up enforcing martial law in, in New York and it gets real weird, but it's the lead up to everything that's happening. And they were taking shit from current events because you got to remember, like there were embassy bombings and all that kind of shit going on before the actual, oh, yeah. before the, yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, yeah. world trade center was right. bombed yeah. before. Yeah. Like yeah. things were cooking. People knew about it. Like it wasn't, just one random that didn't happen out of nowhere just no yeah yeah it didn't happen in a vacuum and so that's kind of what they were putting into this movie and and i think this movie was their worst case scenario (laughs) because nobody had thought about like just the absolute fucking insanity that would happen but like uh it's, it's it's really weird. If you guys haven't seen that movie, you should check it out. I don't think it's, I've seen that movie. Yeah. I haven't either. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, but yeah, I love yeah. fucking Denzel and Bruce. Oh Dude, man, it's on. Anything Bruce is in. It's free somewhere. I'm gonna show. Yeah, see if you can. Put oh, I'm in sure. The I chat. I just yeah, talk into technology and it'll IMDb give it to me. <laughs> technology. Um, just so you can see. Also, like, mm. like even the original movie poster is fucking kind of. Crazy, like, ominous as far as uh, it's on the Brooklyn Bridge or whatever. Yeah, and in the, the Twin Towers are mm. just off to the uh, side yeah. of the Brooklyn Bridge. Well, and and you know what, dude? I honestly, it might be one of those things where you know, and that's why I asked him the question about man, is there such thing as too much? Like, are you you know because we and this is how conspiracies get started, right? Because people, yeah, well, you're looking for right that right, and so like yeah. you're gonna inadvertently find these. You're going to find uh, it if you want to coincidences find it. or synchronicities yeah. or something because yeah, like, right. you're like really looking for it or is there yeah like yeah like or is there actually like something to this or are these directors doing this on mm. purpose or writers doing this on purpose and I think it's a fine line you know I'm not I, saying I, that, I, I, you, you know. got to be careful for sure I, yeah. because I, I, yeah like if there's just a regular old coincidence wow mm-hmm. that's weird that's weird but right? whatever yeah. And then there's the synchronicity that's like a meaningful coincidence, I think yeah. is how Jung described it. And uh, the more you start paying attention to coincidences, the more meaning you're going to ascribe to them, whether it's there or not. Yeah, you know Ab- I mean? absolutely. And that's something you yeah. got to be careful with yeah, to not. For sure. Like, yeah. Did that cat just turn into a polar bear? No, that's just random. That happens every <laughs> Tuesday. So, yeah, somebody said about it for sure. Um, love to have him on. And, yeah, so hopefully, yeah. Uh, listeners, you know, we can have him back on again. We'll get a little bit. We've never had him on. And, I, you know, when we have a guest and then we want to have him back on, we want to, I guess, set up the trampoline for the guest. You know, how would you get into this, what you're doing? But next time we have him on, absolutely, it would be so much fucking fun to just pick his mind on, uh, you know, horror movies and this. Because he had, like, Halloween in his notes and the different, what that represents and all the different how many of there are there? What twelve? Fuck, I lost count at this point. And just what they mean and the symbolism and this and that. I would just love to go down that rabbit hole because that's that's fun. That is absolutely fun. But uh, mm. yeah, but Rob, great to have you on for sure. Um, if you ha- want to have somebody, if you have questions for Rob or something, maybe we didn't catch. Uh, I know I put a little blurb out for the patrons on some questioning that we didn't really have time to get to, but. You know, anything that fits under the sun for that, you know, again, we're we're all movie buffs, so by all means, you know, you shoot us an email at strangejungles at gmail.com. Um, if you have a weird coincidence or something like, hey, have you guys saw this in this movie or these things in these movies? Because we, I find it weird, something we didn't cover, you can call us at 801-252-69... 
45. <laughs> yeah, nobody heard that, John. <laughs> anyway, and, uh, and let us know what's going on. Um, where are we on the socials? We are at uh, Strange Uncles and not at uh, We are at Strange Uncles Podcast. <laughs> we are at uh, <laughs> Instagram. Uh, we're at Strange Uncles on Twitter. We have a YouTube channel that I forgot how to access, so there's nothing new there, <laughs> but maybe someday. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's about it. Okay. Cool beans. Cool beans. Um, I think maybe we'll get a TikTok and start doing TikTok dances. Who knows? Uh, yeah. That's but, popular. Yeah. yeah. I would, t- I'd probably throw a hip out. I don't think I'd be able to do it, but I can try anyway. So. I mean, that might be the shtick that makes us million Shane. Yeah. That's that your old man be. mindset. You know, watching, what? watching it's Shane hurt himself trying to do TikTok dances. It's, might be I mean, we were already it's absolutely worth it. I was talking about Poop Dad at work yesterday, and that dude gets millions of views on every episode or on every. That's just insane. Every it's uh, insane. post that he does. I just don't get tickets. He just wears yeah. a Batman mask and just is the grotesque human being. <laughs> well, you know, everybody has to be that's all. something. So, yeah. So that's funny. Um, stand by, listeners, because we, uh, we have some more guests lined up. We have some original write ups. In fact, we have something coming up that uh, it's going to be kind of a fun one. Uh, I'm going to throw, I'm going to give half of it to you, John and Josh, so you kind of know you follow along. But there's going to be another half of it I'm going to pull back, and it's going to be a little bit of a factor bullshit. So, um, yeah, you know, kind of make some fun out of uh, that topic and stand by for more. So far, you know, it's a good season. We're looking into spring. Um, unfortunately there's a war going on. So, you know, I, I personally am going to use this soapbox to say, uh, I stand by Ukraine and all that other bullshit and everything going on. Um, you know, I hope for the best. And, uh, if somebody's going to complain about gas prices, fuck off. People are dying in our world. So, you know, you can just shut up and buy a Prius and, uh, yeah, that's all I got. You guys got anything? I mean, sustainable energy is the only way forward for humanity. So you're not right. Absolutely. Absolutely. So one way or another. Anyway, awesome. Enjoy it, everybody. Uh, Good seeing you guys again. Rob, thanks for coming on. And close the gates.